Living in retrospect is a bad idea, and sometimes we let our same old stories hold us back from the new adventure God has for us. But here's the truth. God wants to restory us, transforming our tales of tragedy into epics to anticipate. In this podcast, Mary DeMuth interviews people who have lived through God's powerful restory process, where they've discovered healing, joy, and a brand new perspective. So let's shed that old, painful story and find the freedom we've been longing for. The Restory Podcast starts now. Restory Season 2, Episode 8. Today's podcast is brought to you by BookLaunchMentor.com. If you're an author needing to polish your book before you launch it or you need coaching help to launch your staggering work of genius, check out the services at BookLaunchMentor.com. Today, I'm welcoming author and nonprofit entrepreneur Chris Marlowe. He is the author of Doing Good is Simple, and I think it will just really bless you, so pick up a copy if you can. And Chris and I met when um, I went to Haiti a couple of years ago, and I had the privilege of going with several bloggers, and we were able to uh, launch and build a school. And so Chris and I have a really good conversation today, and uh, we basically solve all the world's problems, <laughs> except that we didn't, but we had a great conversation. And I know that some of the things that he shares are really going to help you as you consider how you can do good in this world. So without further ado, here we go. Hey everyone, it's Mary with the Restory Show. And today I'm really excited to have Chris Marlowe with me. And he and I met in Haiti, well, a little bit before Haiti, but we went to Haiti together with Help One Now and were able to build a school as a result, which was awesome and is standing today and servicing lots of kids and great people. And I really fell in love with the ministry of Help One Now at that time because of the sustainability and the way that they go into cultures and they ask questions instead of demand and try to be all American about everything. And uh, I'm just telling all of Chris's story before he even has a chance. Um, but uh, I just appreciated that. Like, I, I love the idea of being in that like learner's posture and believing that people in their own context actually have a lot more to say about how to sol- have solutions than we, you know, super smart Americans. So anyway, that's how we met. So um, we were both like sweaty and tired and all the things and got stuck in traffic jams. And that's how we met. So Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Mary. And uh, man, we have a lot to talk about already. We're jumping right into the deep stuff and about how bad <laughs> Americans are at missions. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, and I've been overseas as a long-term missionary, so I can. Sp- oh, I feel like right, I yeah. can say that. So <laughs> you can yes. criticize your own, right? Yeah, well, well, it's we have we have a lot to talk about. That's for sure. We do. Um, let's begin with just your story of you know how you grew up, how you came came to faith, and met your wife, and just kind of a nutshell of your own story. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for asking. Um, interesting. I you know I and for folks who especially live in the South, um, this kind of is mind blowing. But um, I grew up in Northern California, just about thirty minutes outside of San Francisco, and I grew up really with no connection to church. Or God or religion, um, and if you would ask me as a 16 year old kid about Jesus, I would have probably said historical figure, but no connection to deity, salvation, Christianity, um, just completely clueless. And so, like most um, boys in high school, I was um, trying to date a young girl, 
And she basically was going to this camp up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So when you grow up in California, you go camping all the time. Um, and that's just kind of culture. And so I was assuming camp, she was like literally going camping, you know, like roasting marshmallows <laughs> and hiking and, you know, trout fishing, which I, whatever that is, I've never really done that. So I was actually supposed to be in San Diego on spring break with some other friends. And I think this is kind of when God began to move without me knowing that God was beginning to move. But um, the friend I was with, his, his, his dad's, car dealership burnt down and so we had to rush home and so i was really bummed right like san diego beach week it's gonna be great spring break um so i came home and it's a it's a sunday night and um, my friend vaughn sends me i think at the time back then we had pagers and sent me Mm -hmm. a page that makes sense (laughs) if you don't know what that means you're so retro oh my gosh so it's yeah i'm like totally got my hipster card back with that one um so anyhow his mom jumps on the phone after we're talking and says hey why don't you go to camp with us tomorrow and i'm like you know okay i don't have anything else to do and then she's like well and jennifer will be there for sure and um so i'm like okay if jennifer's going to be there and vaughn like plan b is in effect instead of beach in san diego let's go camping in lake tahoe um and so as we um i realized the next day after a few miracles of being able to afford it and finding a ride, I show up to this camp and I realized it was a Christian youth camp and there was going to be <laughs> preaching three times a day. Now, here's the funny part about it. It gets worse, right? You know how you're that person that people are talking about in the room? Um, I go into the first class with my friend and it's called Evangelism 101. <laughs> That's awesome. And I realized really quickly that like these people are talking about me and they don't even know it. <laughs> you know, like I'm... <laughs> I have no – so um, – but long story short, um, that Wednesday night, um, a, you know, a, a speaker um, gave a message and I realized that then that God was real and that God was my father and I had this kind of miraculous salvation experience. And that's how I, I came to faith and it was it's totally um, – it was a set, of, a set of miracle after miracle after miracle. But what I really began to realize, and I talk about this a little bit, in the book, and I think God was shaping something way back then, is God was using everyday normal people to do very normal things to make a huge impact in my life. And that's kind of the the beginning of my salvation story, if you will. I love that. And I love that, you know, you and I share that kind of same experience. I became a Christian at camp. I was 15 and a half, almost 16. And, uh, and it was in the Pacific Northwest, so a little bit more north of you. But there's something about mountains and trees and Jesus that kind of, <laughs> you know, get together. Um, so you and, had your hippie card. Is that I, what you're yes, like I had it all going on. I was hugging those trees and then meeting Jesus. But I love what you say about simple things and, and folks just doing simple acts of love. We we just last night hosted our friends who are um, they are church planters in southern France and they are loving marginalized folks and their message is super simple. It's just they just flat out love people and they're seeing a very um, ostracized minority come to know Jesus because of simple acts of love like that. Isn't it amazing how we complicate? the gospel like we almost get upset that it's so simple like we're trying to make jesus more complicated than he really is or his message um and because we don't give ourselves grace we're trying to figure out things like will god really use a broken person like me to make an impact and often we think and and this is so frustrating to me in christianity we think only those people can make an impact the 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 person with the book or the big platform or this that or the other or the large organization and it's it's just such a lie. Like God uses everyday normal people. So when I think about the individuals who made an impact in my life, um, a, a youth pastor of a very small church, uh, 
you know, I mean, a small, I don't it's called, I don't even remember the name of the church. Hmm. And so he's now a missionary in Brazil. Um, Jennifer, the, the young girl who I was trying to date, her dad was a plumber and, and he invested in my life, you know, way back then. Um, my, my friend Vaughn, whose mom invited me, um, is a school teacher. And then, um, I was, didn't have a home to live in. And so she was a single mom, school teacher, plenty of issues in her own life. She was trying to sort through. And then she invites me into her story and says, why don't you come live with me instead of couch surfing all over the city? Um, so for a year, I got this really stable family environment, got so much discipleship and Christian teaching that I didn't even know I was getting at the time. But it, it's a, a plumber, a small a small youth group pastor, and a teacher who made an impact on my life. And so they, you know, pretty connected to them still. Thank God, um, the Facebook, you know, we stay connected. But like it's everyday normal people that God uses. Um, and oftentimes we don't feel like we're good enough or we're not doing, um, we don't have big all the time. And I think small um, needs to be more of a, a reality. So your friends in south of France, their work is hard. And so, you know, they're not thinking thousands. They're thinking five, ten, twelve, whatever it is. But that's just as important as any anything else going on in our world. And we forget that there were 12 that Jesus poured into, you know, that was not a lot of people and they turned the world upside down. Absolutely. Yes. So you probably graduated from high school and maybe you went to college and did you meet a wife and what's the yeah, rest, rest yeah. of your story? And my wife married up. That's <laughs> <laughs> I'm just totally kidding. <laughs> I have a yeah, feeling so. you love her a lot. I see how much you, yeah. you know, are kind to her on social media and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Uh, it's called wisdom. Being married twenty years, you're, you have to. Um, yeah, so my wife Nicole, she's um, her and I are. You know, we just celebrated twenty years of marriage. Awesome. Um, which is, I think, maybe the greatest accomplishment coming from a mom who had four husbands. Um, you know, and broken marriages. Obviously, it's just hard to stay together. It's it's. So when I think people ask me all the time, it's about help one now. It's grown and gotten bigger and larger impact. To me, the most important thing I, I do is is I've been married for 20 years, and that's not been an easy journey. We've had you know ups and downs, and marriage is hard, but there's nothing more missional or more important than than raising a family that lives on mission together. So my wife's a hairstylist. She um she lives in her own world, which I love. She can care less about most of the stuff in my world. So like we, we're kind of a perfect fit. I'm traveling all over the world doing crazy things, and she's the most kind of stable person, takes care of the kids, just – so we we just we match so well. So I met her, um, yeah, at a church in California. So um, in Sacramento, one of the I was a youth pastor um, at a church, and she was um, she was attending the church. We got married young, and um, it's been it's been a fun journey. And um, one of the things I love about my both my my wife and my two daughters, or, who are sixteen and fourteen now, is they're they're totally in with help one now. Um, yet our family is really independent, so it works really well. And you can kind of see how God is orchestrating. The future, even you know, twenty years ago when we got married. Your your book is about, and I haven't read it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, your book is about doing you know small great things, basically. Or, or um, I'm butchering the title. What's the title of the book again? Uh, doing good is simple. Simple. There we go. I knew there was simple and, you're, you're and good. In the book. <laughs> hey, you you have a little yeah. yeah. Hey, you're, that's you're, right. Our trip to Haiti. We, we talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about the origins of how in the heck did Help One Now get started, and what did this? How did this happen? Yeah, yeah. So so I'm um, I'm living in Austin, Texas, planting a church. 
We're about a year and a half in. Church is going really well. I'm loving the city of Austin. Um, eating lots of tacos. Of course, um, I had some this morning. Of course, yeah, a little bit. You did right your now. duty? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and um, you know, life was just really good, meaningful good. Um, but yeah, here's what I realized. And my friend Greg said this. You know, a life interrupted is a life inspired. And one of the things God's constantly doing to us, even to give us a better story, is constantly interrupting our normal life, if you will. Um, and so for about five years, there was this kind of whisper that I kept hearing about serving the poor, um, seeking justice, actually not only just reading it in Scripture in my devotions, but actually saying, how am I tangibly living out caring for the poor? So when I study Scripture, I'm trying to find out what are the, what are the big themes in Scripture, love, forgiveness, Serving the poor is one of those from Genesis to Revelation. It's just a massive theme. And yet I didn't think I was doing anything tangible. I was popping in or out or I would do a quick mission trip or I would go serve homeless peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I was like, something is is wrong here. So after about five years of ignoring God and making a whole lot of excuses, I'm a church planner, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I... I'm, you know, working another job to pay the bills because I'm a church planner. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't have time for this. Um, and so, you know, and thankfully, like, you know, Mrs. Ross, who was the, the elementary school teacher who, who brought me in their home. Thankfully, she didn't say she didn't have time because she could have used that excuse. And who knows how different my story would have been if she said, I don't have time. And so ultimately ended up going to um, South Africa and Zimbabwe after five days in Cape Town and first time in a third world developing country environment and my mind was just being blown away by 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 the poverty but also by the hope and i was trying to understand that as i was in cape town but then we ended up going to zimbabwe in zimbabwe is 2007 literally on the verge of a civil war i remember um going through passport control and the south african police officer was like what are you doing going into zimbabwe I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm following my friend and a local Zimbabwe pastor named John and his wife, Orpa. And so um, they let us through after four hours. Um, And on the other side, the Zimbabwe police says, hey, listen, you can stop in one place before you get to your destination. I mean, Zim was literally um, on the verge, you know, of a civil war. And so um, after about 20 hours of travel, we get to downtown Harare. It's the capital city of Zimbabwe, about three million people. And it was just desolate. There's the grocery stores are closed down. There's no gas. Folks are, are just in, in, in real chaos. Um, so we drive up to this gas station in the middle of the night. Pastor John wants to check on some kids at this gas station. And I remember telling John, like, John, are you sure this is a good story? I mean, are you sure this is a good idea? Because we know where I come from, we don't stop at abandoned gas stations at 4 a.m. in the morning. This is just not safe. And he's like, but we have to check in these kids. And so we did. Um, and I remember as we pulled in and the van lights shone over the gas station, I just remember seeing the entire, you know, gas station floor um, filled with young kids. And I realized that this was basically a makeshift orphanage, that kids from all over the city would come to this this gas station at night to have a community, to be together for safety protections, for warmth. And then the next, you know, in the morning they would scatter off into the city to try and find food and means. And so we get out of the van, we're surrounded by all these kids. And one young boy grabs me by the arm, pulls me low, looks me in the eye. And he says, basically this, he says, thank you so much for visiting my country. I'm so sorry it's in the shape that it's in. I don't want to beg you for food, but we haven't had anything to eat in days. Is there anything I can do to work for you so we can get something to eat? And I remember this moment. It lasted 30 seconds. And it was definitely a, an interruption. 
if you will. I feel like God dropped me in the middle of hell and said, wake up. This is what's happening. You're you're part of the church. I need you on mission. Um, but I looked at this young boy in the eye and I told him no. We got back in the van. Mm. We drove off. And this wasn't your traditional even street kid. Um, literally, this kid was definitely on the edge of life. Um, what? And I didn't know it at the time. I didn't have enough wisdom or enough experience to understand the state. But I was just completely overwhelmed by the devastation that I saw in his eyes and in the kids. And so that was the moment that kind of launched everything. I, it literally got interrupted everything. I came back home to Austin after the trip, spent a year doing a research program on poverty alleviation, and then spent time processing if I should start an org or join an org. Mm. Which we decided to start Help One Now in 2009. And yeah, that's kind of the, the origins of how we got going. Wow. That's an awesome story. And I think I like that there was a, you know, like a negative in there is in that, you know, it's not like you, and you looked into his eyes and then you gave him a job and then he was fine. And then you saved the world. And because so many of us have that story where God just kind of leads us along and we make mistakes and we, we feel very overwhelmed by the need. And that's one of the reasons why I even like the title of your organization, Help One Now, because you focus on the person in front of you and um, dignify that person in front of you to be able to help others. And and your yes. passion is really to empower indigenous leaders. And how did you kind of get to that place? And mm. I'm guessing there's a morphing that happened. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it, it is our passion. Um, and so in that year long research study that I did, I, you know, I spent time traveling, visiting orgs, spending time with like leaders of other nonprofits. One of the things that concerned me is Every time I would go in the field, I would always see an outsider being the leader. And I was thinking to myself, how in the world can we innovate? How can we create change if it's always an outsider leading and not a local? Um, and so through kind of like the study and the experience, I begin to ask questions um, to kind of keep people in the field. And I begin to say, hey, what if we did a model like this? Would it work? Or is that just a terrible idea because I'm – I'm young. So a CEO of a really large um, nonprofit who I love and respect said, hey, listen, you should start a nonprofit if you're willing to break all the rules. And that was like gave me the freedom to like say, okay, I'm not getting in the way. I'm not just starting a nonprofit because I'm emotional. Sometimes we start things we shouldn't start, you know, and we actually hurt the cause because we're starting something we shouldn't start. And so I just spent time. I slowed down, got my emotions in check and said, you know, is God calling me to do this? And if so, how do I do it? I totally hear you. And I appreciate, I appreciate what you have to say about, uh, slowing down and not reacting to your emotions because I think there's a lot of mistakes made with, we just get emotional and think, okay, I'm going to make this decision and I'm just going to go for it. And, or we read, you know, really inspiring missionary bi- biographies, even, you know, ones today that, uh, you know, kisses with Katie or something. We think, okay, I'm just going to go and I'm going to do my thing and, you know, I have a daughter who is 23 years old and she's got lots of passion and compassion and is really weighing how she will be overseas someday. But I'm grateful that she's thinking through what does it look like to truly help people instead of just, well, I feel sad or I feel guilty or I feel compassion and I can't, I, I, I need to do something, but just to plow through it without even thinking. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. I was processing, you know, speaking um, at a conference next week and I was processing like, so I think it is one of the struggles we have is how do we really help people? Passion and wisdom have to be mixed together. And oftentimes our passion drives us 
And that's a good thing. We have compassion. We care. We want God to use us. We want to see other people's lives changed. But it also takes wisdom. And so as we jump into, you know, doing good, I begin to realize, like, I needed some real wisdom. I wanted to slow down and allow wisdom to catch up to my passion. And I realized overall, like, there's a lot of amazing nonprofits out there doing great work. There's a lot of local churches doing great work. But ultimately, I could add value um, that will help everyone move forward, not just help one now. And so, but I remember 2009, one of the, one of the bigger issues was one, the global economy is falling apart. And I'm thinking like, this is not a good time to start a nonprofit. Like this <laughs> is crazy. Like I, one of the things I talked about even is like, I had to like cut all the treats from my dogs from our budget for our dog, you know, like we're cutting everything back just to start the nonprofit. And so, but ultimately like it, wisdom matters. And so if we can combine passion and wisdom, God will use us to do amazing long-term work. Now, the other factor is it doesn't matter if the work is small or big. And I think that's where the, one of the big issues we're facing. Everyone feels like we need to do something big to live significant lives. You know, like it's just not true. Like a plumber, a school teacher, and a small, you know, youth pastor did something really big for me. But overall, you know, no one else knows what they did. They didn't, they didn't get any acclaim out of it, if you will. So half the time as we think about what does it mean to serve people, to love people, um, it really doesn't matter if it's big or small. What is really important that we're being obedient and we're being intentional. And often when we think about doing good and compassion and mission and justice, if we don't plan it out, it's probably not going to happen. And so we plan so much in our lives. We plan, we plan discipleship. We plan youth, you know, like kids stuff. We plan marriage stuff. But I think in mission, even as we think about serving the, you know, our neighbors, it needs to be integrated naturally into our lifestyles, but it also has to be an intentional thought process. How do you spend your time? What gifts or passions do you have that could be used to, to serve you know, the poor, to serve a nonprofit who's serving the poor? Um, and then, yeah, how do you add it to your budget? If basically, if you don't budget in generosity, there's a good chance you're not going to be generous. And so it's a little mixture of like integrating it naturally, but also being intentional. Yeah, I love that. I think we had the, this experience this year where my husband was without a job for half the year. And we had to back down on many of our giving commitments because we just didn't have any money. And and uh, just a couple of weeks ago, he got a job. <laughs> and I was able to contact people and say, okay, we can give again. I was uh, so excited. Awesome. But uh, you're right about the intentionality of it. We can just – plus, I think we need to be spirit-led because – there are so many opportunities out there and so many ways we could be spending our money, our time, our talent, our treasure that I, I believe the spirit wants to inspire us in certain ways. And so we don't just like shotgun give, we hear him and then respond to the spirit give that way. Absolutely. And one of the things I love about Help One Now is, is we're, we, we, we're trying to build a tribe or a community of people who walk with us long term but who are on-ramps and off-ramps, right? So we give on-ramps. Like, here's how you can get, you know, people don't want to be stuck forever. Like, what if I unsponsor a child? Am mm. I the worst human ever? Right. <laughs> no. You know, like, if you sponsor a child for six months or six years or 16 years, you've made a huge impact in that time. And so oftentimes with justice, we feel guilty. We don't know if we're doing it right. We don't know if we're doing enough. And even the reason why I wanted to pin the book is because I wanted – the conversation to kind of be interrupted. Like, let's have a graceful conversation. Let's have, you know, I want people people to be, to feel good about being generous and giving. And I always feel like they're not doing enough because that's not, you know, not doing enough 
is it from God? The key is like, what is God calling you to do? And then stepping into that with faith and then every single day doing our best we can to live out what it means to be a good neighbor, to serve the poor and really to make the world a better place. Yeah. I I think that's super wise. And I love what you said about wisdom catching up to your passion. Cause I think we can, you know, you started this when you were pretty young and we can let that kind of dictate everything that we do. So what, uh, let's jump to your book a little bit. What made you want to write a book and what was the, like the catalyst for the, the subject matter that you had, that you chose? Oh, it's so interesting. Yeah, yes. Um, well, so we, we're coming back from Haiti on our trip. <laughs> Um, I'm going through TSA line and our mutual friend, Jen Hatmaker is like, Marlo, you need to go write a book. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you know, it's Jen. So like, I don't know if you, you can't say no to her. Right. So, um, I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I, like I'm not a writer. I'm, my English teacher thought I was the worst student ever. You know, like <laughs> there's no, I mean, I had no dreams of being a writer at all. So I took it and again, I took about a full year and just, you know, wrestled and thought through it. And it became, I kind of shelved it, if you will. But ultimately, I knew for the org and for, for really for humanity, that we needed to talk about justice in a different way. So I didn't want to talk about it from a, from a the deep theological way. I also, so many times when we hear about justice, it's like this hammer dropping and like people are just like crushing people's souls almost like we're not doing enough we're not giving enough we're not going enough and it's always like we're not enough and i'm like i don't really see that in scripture i see everyday normal people need to understand that god wants to use them to make a big impact um in this world and so they don't have to move overseas to do that they don't have to give half their budget to do that um they can take small simple yet significant steps um, each and every day to make a difference. So I wanted to write a book that would add value to the whole conversation. But also, when people w- read the book, I wanted them to take about an hour and a half or two hours. I wanted it to be short, so it was accessible. I wanted them to laugh. I wanted them to cry. And I wanted them to close the book saying, you know what? God wants to use me and my family, my talents, my gifts to make a difference. And um, hopefully, that's what we're going to do. To starting a revolution of of love warriors out there. <laughs> yeah, I, awesome. I think you know people just need to know that like you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have everything figured out. Um, you know, and the, but we talked about multiple things in the book. One thing is like you know six hurdles to to overcoming. Um, how to partner well. Um, kind of six things that everyone needs in life, right? And so we try to give these real practical information and stories and details, but also it's it's very story driven. And so ultimately. I wanted people to have you know more wisdom when they walked away, but I didn't want them to feel like, man, I'm just not good enough. I'm not giving enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not going enough. So that that mixture of grace and mercy and wisdom kind of mixed into the conversation of justice and mercy. Yeah. So um, in the past year or so, um, what what's been kind of your greatest challenge, or what have you faced either as a ministry or just as a husband and father? Does anything come to mind? <laughs> a lot, right? Like, yeah. oh man, it is. Our, so I'm, I would consider myself someone filled with a lot of hope. We deal with some of the worst, you know, worst issues in the world. We've, we've had kids kidnapped. We've had kids die in this. We've had, and we deal with a lot of darkness, if you will. Um, but for the most part, we get to experience a lot of the hope. We get to see communities transformed, kids' lives changed, churches planted, schools built. We, and we get to live mostly in the stream of hope. The last six months, probably, just with the political climate in America, you know, global terrorism, there's, there's so many 
issues going around. So I've even had to ask myself questions of hope and like where where are we going in the world and how how are we making an impact and is any of this matter? Is it making a difference? And so I think like a lot of people, you know, we're we're and and, and you know one of the things I do think is like every generation has a few moments that define them. Um, obviously, nine eleven is one of those moments for our generation, and I feel like right now we're living in one of those moments, like how we respond to all the different issues. Because a lot of times before, like America, the U.S. would be relatively stable, so I would go out into the world and you know come home to more stable. Um, but now, now it's, it just is not a stable, and so the world's changing and how we respond to it. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to ever go back to whatever it was. Um, so it's just going to be interesting to see how we live on mission and deal with all the uncertainty, but still have this fierce hope that the world can get better. Um, and, and I keep reminding myself that the news is not the story. Like there's all this brilliant, amazing work happening. I mean, I was just in Uganda and Ethiopia last week, literally spending time with people whose lives were transformed because simple acts of generosity by, by people here, you know, in the States and by amazing local leaders there in Ethiopia and Uganda. And it reminded me that the, the, the news is not the story. The presidential election is not the story. There's all this amazing work happening, and I need to make sure I'm surrounding myself with that as I deal with kind of the realities of the other issues that we're facing. I so agree. And I've been, I've been trying to read more through the Sermon on the Mount lately, and it, it, was, it was astounding to me how much the Jesus talks about the kingdom there and it's so counterintuitive to what we we think Christianity is and and part of the the thing I'm going through in my mind is I'm trying to to as an american I'm trying to pull apart what is americanism versus what is christianity and you and I both had the privilege of being able to go overseas and then come back and see our culture with new eyes but not a lot of people get to do that. And so it's just been, it's, it's been a thinking time for me of what does it mean to love other people? And how do I not be just an American Christian and, and have syncretism going on that I don't even know about, you know, where I'm taking these values and what is the gospel compared to American Christianity? And I don't know if you've got the solution to that, but that's just something I'm wrestling with lately. Oh boy, that's so interesting, right? I think um, one of the things I talk about all the time is the American dream is a gospel nightmare. Yes, this is so true. It's just true, and you know, people hate it, right? Because they don't want to hear that. Of, yeah, who wants to hear that? Like, tear down my white picket fence, and and half the battles, like, it's, the American dream is not wrong as long as it doesn't become an idol, right? So, like, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, how poor. Like the only thing that really matters is like you're being obedient to what God tells you to do the next step. And so help one now. I mean, we're funded by some of the wealthiest people and it's beautiful. Um, we're, we're, we, we serve some of the poorest people and there's just this beautiful collaboration, but ultimately we're discipling one another. We're caring for one another. It's not one above the other. It's like we're a community of people trying to figure out how to help each other in the journey called life. And so I do think, um, Christianity is changing in the West and it's only a matter of time before we're going to be forced to um, go deeper in mission and our faith and, and the, the things that used to work are no longer going to work. So we're going to have to count the cost more, more than we ever have before. Um, but I think ultimately, like, that's going to create more opportunity. Because here's what we learn with our brothers and sisters around the world who live in poverty. They've learned how to trust God so deeply 24 hours at a time. And that's always been how they disciple me, like their faith and trust in God. And so 
now I can come home and say, you know, I'm not sure what my country is going to be like in a year or in five years or in 10 years. But God's sovereign. That's up to God. All I got to do is try and live out my faith each and every day. And I think the one thing we'll see, Mary, and I think this is beautiful, but hard. I learned the hard way that I didn't really want to go to heaven because I lived such a good life here on earth. It was like, why well, don't I want to go to heaven? Life's great here. And I'm eating tacos in Austin with a great family and a nice suburban house. And like everything is good. When I would go around the world, my brothers and sisters in Christ would like, they are so excited about heaven. And so now what I'm starting to realize is just like, heaven's a, it's a final destination. So no longer, no, no, no matter what goes on on this side of eternity, um, it's all going to be okay for eternity someday. So um, it's making me appreciate heaven more, but also realizing how I spend my moments now matter. Um, and I want to utilize them the best I can. Yeah, I think having that eternal perspective, I went through a whole Randy Alcorn phase in the early 2000s, and it helped me because I realized it doesn't matter. All this stuff doesn't matter. And, you know, as when we were on this a field, we lost our home to a con man, and we lost everything financially. And it was the absolute best thing that ever happened to me um, to realize it doesn't matter. God owns it anyway, and this is not the final say. It really helped. Absolutely. Like, it's it's, I think what will be difficult for the West will be embracing some of these new challenges, um, knowing that it's only going to make us better. Or it's only going to make us have to fight to know God and to live out the gospel better. You know, we can no longer hide in safety and comfort. And ultimately, like safety and comfort to an extent is a barrier of getting to know Jesus in an intimate way. Um, and so there's opportunities um, for us to. To grow, and so I think the thing that's hard for the American church is the we're no longer the leaders of the global church. I remember spending time with a pastor in Egypt, and his, his church had just been bombed by Al Qaeda. He's caring for seventy five orphans and widows in the front row. He's literally putting his life on the line every single day. And he tells me back then, he goes, "Can you introduce me to so and so?" And it was a big mega church pastor here in America. And I was like, why do you want to be introduced to that person who's amazing? I mean, I love this, I love this gentleman, but, but he's all like, well, I want our church to become like that church. And I was like, pastor, like we want to become like you, like you're literally putting your life on the line for Jesus every single day. Um, we need to become more like you. And I remember him just having tears rolling down his eyes. Like he's just, he's never really heard anyone tell him that before. And so I think opportunities are amazing right now around the world. The church is thriving and flourishing. And God ultimately is in control. The key is, will we as Western Christians be okay with maybe giving up our comfort and the things that we're used to and allow ourselves to kind of move into whatever the next phase is for American Christianity? I think, too, there's this need for us to engage with people that are different from us. And so, um, you know, when I was in Ghana, I met a guy who... And you're, you would have this probably same story multiple times, but he just, he had such strong faith and he had to believe God for everything. And it, it, it was so simple. He said, Mary, if my children get sick, my first reaction is to pray. It's not to call the doctor because they simply could not. They had no money. And so then I realized, oh my gosh, how much have I turned to the almighty dollar instead of automatically turning to God first? And because I've had, I have all these things and I have money, I realize how easily money could become an idol. But I would not have seen that had I not been conversing with someone that was different and had different circumstances than me. Yeah, I think, and you know, that's, and, and that's one of the challenges, right? Like we live in the West, we have access to 
to opportunities and, and that most don't have access to. In theory, none of that's wrong. It's right. Just, and Absolutely. actually, one of the things we're one of the things we're trying to do, like you know, what the world really wants is opportunity. I talk about six things, six desires that every human has: opportunity, home, job, healthcare. Um, but one of those is faith, right? Like if 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 our first reaction isn't God, then we've put an idol before that. And so that's half our battles. Realizing, okay, science is awesome. Um, you know, having access to, to to cash and resources is awesome, but not if God's not the first step. That, those have to be the second step. And I think that's what you know. That's kind of the shift. Even how, how our local churches begin to um, teach and train is going to have to change because we don't. You know, we. I think it's really hard for us to really believe in the theology that the devil is real and that he is. Seeking to devour people. Like, think about that scripture. How do we? What do we? How do we manage that when we're Western Christians in a relatively safe? You know, I mean, not everyone, but you know, most of our audience is relatively safer, live in safer environments, and we're trying to figure out this devil seeking to kill us. He's a lion, you know, ready to devour us. Um, but the more and more you begin to read that, you're out. You know, if if you embrace good versus evil, as you know, and Evil is real, and it, it's it has it brings pain. And so, how do we deal with that? And here's what's great: like we guess we have full joy. We actually may have a greater life by having less than we ever imagined. And that's that's just a tension we have to wrestle with. Yeah, I agree. And it's something you know I'm personally wrestling with again and again and again. And it's so it's a, it's convicting even to keep talking about it because I I want to make sure that I am have the heartbeat of the Lord and and in everything that I'm doing, including my resources and going wherever God calls me to go. So, yeah, it, I was just spending time with an extremely wealthy family. They own a few private jets. It's that, that kind of wealth. Yeah. Sold their business for half a billion dollars. Mm. You know, great, crazy stuff. Like I don't even, I don't even get it. Right. Like but one of the things I realized with this family is how much faith they have in God and how much like that wealth, they almost don't even care about the wealth. It's just there. And they're trying to figure out how to steward it. Well, and so even whether I'm with some of the poorest, materially poorest people in the world or whether I'm with some of the materially richest people in the world, it really is about posture and about saying, okay, God, no matter where I'm at, I want my entire life to be submitted to you. And that's, that's all that matters. And so, again, it begins to – it just teaches me how far I have to go in my own faith. That's a question I have. Um, one of the last questions I'm going to ask is – is what kind of advice would you give to someone who just desperately wants to love Jesus more and grow deeper and wider? What what would you suggest or what has helped you? Soul care is vital. Like you matter. Like we've got to bring back soul care, especially in Western Christianity. You know, we're so driven, we're always in the move, we're always trying to build, accomplish something. You know, I'm that person. Like I so the last three or four years I recognize I'm trying to build an organization that lasts beyond my lifetime. So part of that's I have to. I'm running a marathon, not a sprint. So so care. I got to take care of myself. Got to take care of my family. Um, got to make sure the wildly important is is the focus. The second thing is like grace, right? Like man, this like life is hard. Jesus didn't give us a real simple book to follow. I mean, it's it's okay to live in the tension and try to figure out theology and mission and you know how the praxis of all that is lived out. Um, and even one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I was so tired of really good, amazing people feeling guilty all the time. And so that's half the battle is how do we live on mission without feeling this weight that somehow we have to change the whole world or we got to fix everything or we got to solve everything. 
We just don't. So I think giving ourselves grace. Um, so I say soul care, grace. And then the third thing, and I use this word all the time, probably overuse it. My editor definitely edited it out multiple <laughs> times. You know that world. Um, but being intentional. You don't get much done in life if you're really not thoughtful on how you spend the things that God gives you, the time, the money, the gifts, the, the you know, those, we have to be thoughtful in that. And I think sometimes we miss that. We're, we're, and that's where you see really good people. Sometimes they don't make the impact they want to make. It's because they're not just living thoughtful, missional lives, you know, and I think that's a battle. So soul care, grace, and living intentionally a missional life. I think those things are, are absolutely valuable. Right. I, I love that. And, Thank you for that, because I think it's not your typical, okay, well, just go memorize these verses and, <laughs> you know. Your five-minute Bible study every morning. I think, okay. Yes, your QT with JC and all that. You know, I, I can't, I've never in my life completed a year-long, like, the, I can't do that. <laughs> Can only make it like your day 112. <laughs> no, I've read Genesis like a hundred times. I've read it again, like I know it by heart now. Yeah. Right? Read then like I hit Leviticus and then I'm over. It's yeah. done. <laughs> so true. So in the past year, how has God restoried you and given you a new story? Oh man, that's awesome. I think I think the 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 beauty of it is just living in this peace. Like I don't have to do all the things that people are telling me I have to do. Like trying to learn like twenty four hours at a time. I'm not sure, you know, what life's gonna be like, but I know God's in control. And, and, and each day I'm trying to live faithfully the calling that God's given me, use the gifts that God's given me. Um, to, and, and, and here's what, in, in the midst of more uncertainty, I've become more committed to my faith, you know, to knowing God, to hearing God's voice. And even, and this is when you launch a book, this is hard, even less hype, right? Like just, I love being home with my family. I love the simple things of life. I, you know, it's, it's the beautiful part. So in one hand, I get to live this really adventurous life. We're kind of always doing, you know, I just got back from Uganda and Ethiopia. You know I mean? You know, we rafted the Nile River, hung out with two Navy SEALs, um, you know, saw like transformation. Like I can talk about all the big things, but ultimately what I like is the small things, the simple things, because um, God's in both. And so often people feel like, oh, you're doing amazing things for God because you're doing all those great things. I'm just an accountant. It's like, no, no, you're not just an accountant. You're living out whatever God's called you to do, whether you're an accountant, a school teacher, a missions person, a preacher, whether you're well-known or not well-known. None of it even matters. The only thing that matters is like we're trying to live out the call that God put in our lives because that's what the world needs now. Because what we're seeing, especially with the extreme extremism that we're all facing every day in the news now, it's going to be the everyday normal people that truly make the impact um, and we got to just embrace that calling on our lives. Yeah, and I think a whole bunch of ordinary people doing, you know, simple and extraordinary things, that's going to change the landscape of the kingdom, not like big political movements or, you know, I think about like Gandhi or um, Martin Luther King Jr., one person just standing up and saying no more and, and yet, but not in a, you know, angry way or, you know, like a revolutionary way or whatever. Yeah, yep, yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the Restory Show today. I am so excited to share you with the listeners and um, looking forward to seeing how well your book does and that, you know, just beginning to start a little, you know, think tank revolution with that and just Godspeed on it. I really am excited for it. Awesome. Thank you so much, for Mary, for having me and I'm super excited. And um, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see where the book goes. But more importantly, I hope this message just encourages people to live, you know, to live out 
grace-filled lives that will make an impact. Thanks for listening to The Restory Show. Do you mind if I pray for you? Lord, thank you for this opportunity where we can hear the heart of another person and we can learn the power of listening and the power of sitting down with all sorts of people in all sorts of locales all over the world to listen and hear what they have to say about what it means to do good. And I pray that you would put opportunities in front of us this week, just simple little opportunities to uh, help people to love them well, to come alongside those who are hurting. Um, And it might even mean, Lord, that you just place someone in front of us who needs to be prayed for in the moment and not just say, hey, I'll pray for you. Um, Lord, thank you for the people in this world who are wanting to make a difference. And I do pray the rest of us listening to this would just have that same passion and we pray for the needs of the world, which are overwhelming, and we, we thank you that your kingdom is coming on this earth, and we want to be a part of building that kingdom and to see justice and mercy and, and kindness uh, come throughout this world. So please bring it, Lord, and we trust you. We choose to have joy in the midst of our trauma. We choose to believe that you can do great things, and we choose to believe that you are the God that holds everything together, even when we feel like we're out of control. So thank you for that. Thank you that you are in control and you hold you hold the world in the palm of your hands and therefore you hold our hearts in your hand as well. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to know more about today's show with links and other information, please go to marydemuth.com forward slash restory 2-8. That's marydemuth.com forward slash restory 2-8. And may you live a brand new story this week. <music>